Hi, my name is Dave Stitt and a very warm welcome to my Coaching Conversations podcast. In this series, I'm talking with senior people from industry, academia and the world of politics about them and their experience of coaching. My aim is to raise awareness of what coaching is and isn't, so as a practice it becomes more widely used in the construction industry, making things better for construction people. I hope you enjoy listening and find these recordings useful. Today I'm in conversation with Mark Prisk, a former UK housing and construction minister and uh, I'm now executive coach. Hi Mark, great to be with you here today. Um, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and, and your current work? Yeah, sure. Hi Dave, good to see you. And I mean, I think I'm unusual in the sense that uh, I trained as a chartered surveyor but then went into politics. Uh, I enjoyed my time there um, and was able to work both as construction minister and then after that as housing minister. So gave me a really good insight from the sort of the big picture as it were. Um, and then having left Westminster in December 19, um, I've come back into the industry really as a strategic advisor working in uh, commercial and residential real estate markets and also as an executive coach. And one of the reasons I did that was I've seen too many consultants talk about strategy, but not really understand that without working with the people in that business, the strategy is just words on a piece of paper. Mm. And I wanted to be somebody who was able to help businesses grow working with a strategy, but doing so with the people in the business. And I felt the executive coaching. So I went to Henley Business School and did their course on that to get qualified and I found it really instructive um, it's actually a slight contrast to politics because in politics you tend to ask questions to catch people out right. whereas in, in in coaching it's really to help people think through things it actually politics in a way is quite a good training because it does teach you to listen and it does teach you to how to put a good question together uh, but as I say, it's a slightly different, it's a more constructive purpose uh, in coaching than it very often is for politics. So that's what I've been doing over the last couple of years, working through the pandemic. Uh, and I've, you know, found it very rewarding having left politics. Ah, fantastic. So, so, Mark, I'm really curious, how, how, how long were you, how long were you in politics, presumably mem uh, member of parliament? Yes, I mean, it, it's a bit like being a priest, if the truth be told, you never quite actually leave it. Um, I was really interested in going into politics when I was a teenager. This was the 1970s when we had the three-day week and the lights going out and all of that kind of thing. And also when, perhaps now amazingly appropriately, when the Cold War was at its height. And so you had this whole thing in the world in which you had the East, which was the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact and the West, which was America and Britain and NATO. So I was very interested by that. In fact, I suppose that side of it was actually sparked by a, a, an interest in the James Bond books and what was Smirsch and, and why was there an East-West? So that's sparked my interest originally in politics. And then, um, you know, as I say, through the 70s, I became aware of how important it was. But my parents said to me, hang on a moment, before you go into something really chancy, go and get something solid behind you so that if you, don't, if you never make it in politics, then um, you've got something to fall back on. So I went to Reading University, did the land management course, went into uh, the property 
field and so on, became self-employed and ran my own business for a period, ten, nearly 10 years, and then entered politics in 2001. And I was in Westminster for 18 years um, on the front bench. So a spokesman for my party, the Conservative Party in opposition for nearly nine years. And then as a minister for three and a half years in what became the coalition government, uh, if people remember that, uh, some 12 years ago. So, um, yeah, it was it was a fascinating time. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and, you know, did some things that you would never get to do, uh, you know, outside of, of government politics. Mm, amazing. Fantastic. And it's, uh, and, it's, and it's great to have you here. Uh, Thank it's, you. It's a, it's a, for, for me, it's a special conversation because I don't get to talk <laughs> with, uh, with former construction and housing ministers. So here we go. What, what, okay. what, was, it, what was it like to be a construction minister, Mark? I think the thing to remember is that um, politics is, is, is very much an amateur game in that you never get trained for anything. So you never quite know what you're going to do uh, until the prime minister says, uh, Mark, we'd very much like you to do. And then they say, and it's kind of not, oh, no, I don't want that. Can I do something else? Um, uh, you know, unless you're uh, particularly uh, important. So being a construction minister, I found really interesting. It was part of a, my overall job, which was called the Business and Enterprise Minister, which I started in 2010 when the new government came in. And I did that for two and a half years and then did a further year in a new role in housing in a different department. And construction, I think, was really interesting because if you recall, we'd just come out of a really difficult recession in construction, mm. that period of 2008, 9, 10. So our job was to try to breathe life back into the sector. It's beginning to get back. So as the construction minister, what your job is, is you're the lead point of contact for government with that sector. Uh, I did construction. I covered automotive. I covered aerospace, all part of the brief. And actually, it's quite good doing different sectors because you get to see how different sectors work. And one of the things that construction didn't do that the automotive and aerospace did was it didn't really, and to a degree, doesn't still now speak with one voice. Mm. It's really quite important um, when you're a government minister that uh, if you're getting different voices from the sector, maybe the smaller uh, supply chain or maybe the larger contractors saying different things to you, it's difficult to work out actually what the actual truth is what you need to do about a certain regulation or a different building standard so you know i would say to them and i was shadow construction minister so for the conservative opposition before we went into government i did that for two years and i kept saying to to them the different bodies you really need guys to talk as one mm. because if all i hear are lots of different voices then i'm probably going to choose what i think i want to do but if the industry comes in crystal clear about what it needs and absolutely you know, uh, working as a team, it's much more difficult for a minister to uh, to not listen to that and then follow on from it. Um, so, I mean, there were areas, um, but because I think at the, at the time, and it's still the case today, but it's not nowhere near as bad as it used to be, the whole issue of payments, the whole issue of retentions uh, meant that it was quite a fragmented sector. Mm. Whereas if you went to automotive, you know, these guys, multi-million pound businesses, 
certainly difficult to get them to sit around the table to share information because you know you don't get Volkswagen and you don't get um, Peugeot necessarily willing to be too open about things but in terms of industry standards in terms of critical messages regulations they always work really well so uh, I, I enjoy being construction minister because I, I'm always interested to know how people's businesses tick mm. and go and see it I've always felt, and I'm a surveyor who's tended to work in property more than directly in construction, but lots of dealings with the construction side. And what I always find is people are pragmatic and they're problem solvers. They've got a problem, it's right in front of them, it's very physical, uh, it's very real, they deal with it. And I've always liked that approach in life. That's that's me, I'm not an academic in the in any, any sense, I'm a hands-on person. So I, I enjoyed doing that role. Um, and there were some good things we were able to achieve. Um, but if you said to me, you know, how did the sector feel? I would say mo much more fragmented uh, and less able to speak with one voice. And also, I think the other thing, if, if, and this is 2010 to 2012, it was still very male. Mm. um still is to a degree mm. but it in those days i remember them i got all the uh all the all the different key the key leaders the key chief executives all around the table for a round table about the critical issues and they all said to me minister it's very difficult to recruit we're having real problems recruiting we, you know the labor market just isn't good for us and so i looked around the room and i said guys half of the labor market is not even represented in this room. Mm. Half of the labor market is, in fact, 52% of the labor market is female. There's not a single female sitting around this table representing your industry. Ask yourself why they might not think about getting involved. That's half the total labor. And there was a bit of a stunned silence. And to be fair, I think there have been some very good initiatives since then. Mm. But it was one of those areas where you do have to push back with the sector. It's not all about doing what the sector wants. It's also, you know, in a constructive way, wanting it to succeed, but being able to be an honest uh, uh, council. Uh, so that, I, I thought that was quite an interesting aspect of the sector. Hmm. So, so just reflecting on that, Mark, uh, I, I do know of um, more chief executives who are women. Yeah. Uh, but I think overall, there's still 12% of the construction industry's uh, workforce, uh, staff, employees are, are women, only 12%. Yeah. Yes. And only 1% who are actually working out on, on site. Yes. Uh, so m more work to be done. <laughs> yes. I mean, to be fair, to be realistic, um, some parts of on-site construction, you know, will not appeal to many women. They may not appeal to many men either, but they, they you know, because it's, it can be dirty and wet and cold and all the rest of it. Um, and I'm not saying that all women won't go for that, but I, you know, you can understand that perhaps fewer of them will think of applying for it. But role models are crit critical. Mm. And whether it's you do it because increasing amount of stuff is going to come through modern methods of construction and therefore it will be a different working environment or whatever. I think there is an opportunity for the industry to really think through how does it get more people coming in and more women coming in? Because, um, you know, as I say, that is half the workforce. And if the sector simply doesn't appeal to half the workforce, it is always going to have 
a problem about having en enough of the right people. Mm. So, you know, th there's a role model issue there, which I think is really important. Mm. Well, one of the things that, um, I, so, so, so Mark, I've, I've, I've been in the construction industry for 45 years. Mm. Uh, and if I look at my time across the industry, what, what do I really, really notice? And I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about this. And um, for, for, for me, one of the challenges is the, 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 the default style of conversation, the default management approach in, in, in UK construction, and also, by the way, mainly across the Western world, mm. is, is command and control. Yes. Where, where, where people tell people what to do. And I think kind of since I've become a coach 20-odd years ago, it's it's more polite nowadays you know, people <laughs> say please and thank you yes but but they're still telling people what to do and so if, yeah. if, if 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 i'm your boss mark and i tell you what to do then you can't help but you stop thinking absolutely absolutely and, and, right. and, and you wait for and you wait for orders yep <clears throat> and so the number of people i've number of execs i've coached in the last 20 years who have just said to me out of sheer frustration dave why do i have to do all the thinking around here mm. well yep. the reason why i have to do all the thinking around here is you're telling people what to do absolutely and so part of my kind of mission is to um introduce a coaching style of mm -hmm. management where we ask questions we listen and we enable the other person to work it out for themselves yeah and then when people work things out for themselves their engagement level goes up their their morale and their spirits go up you know they're they're, they're kind of part of yes. the solution so 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 uh, and i also think with that different style of management uh we'll we'll retain you know the talent that we've already got better than we do at the moment mm, mm. Um, and it'll be a more attractive place to work where people are thinking for themselves and working things out for themselves rather than just being fed on instructions um, and so that's part of that, that's part of my uh part of my yes. mission to, well, to, very... to, to train up young construction professionals in how in how to have a coaching style conversation so that they become better in their job right now yeah they become more effective managers over time and ultimately they become great leaders and if i can do yeah. that at scale yeah over time that's going to make things better that's going to change the industry from the ground up well i think that that approach is absolutely right um i mean politics suffers a bit from command and control in that there's always this tension between what number 10 the prime minister and his people want uh, his or her people and what individual departments are doing and you know whether it's the sort of comedy of yes minister or uh, the thick of it there is that tension all the time and if people are looking over their shoulder wondering what the boss is going to tell them to do they're not thinking for themselves um, and there's a there's a perhaps a very timely example of this so uh, the last few days some of the senior military in the in the British army and indeed some of the senior American military have been talking about some of the reasons why the Russians currently in their invasion of, of Ukraine are failing. And part of that is they are trying to run everything from, from Moscow. 
and they don't train their guys on the ground to deal with the situation in front of them. Whereas military protocols uh, in uh, certainly the British Army and uh, increasingly now in the US Army is very much how can we delegate enough leadership down as locally as we can, because in a very fast moving situation, you need the people on the ground in the situation to be able to know how to act and what steps to take and to know what the general plan is, but to be able to work within that in order to achieve their objectives. And you can't run that from Moscow. Mm. Um, and I think that, and that is literally where the phrase command and control comes from. Yeah. But you, you're right. You see it in industries. You see it a bit in politics, where the centre is trying to do everything. One of the arguments for devolving more powers to local areas is you can't, the men from the ministry are never going to be able to deliver good good policies that work as well in Darlington as they do in Exeter, um, because there's always going to be a local nuance or a local history that makes it struggle. So what you've got to do is to set the framework and then give the, 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 the local leadership, I'm speaking in politics terms here, their confidence, their training, their support, that they can lead from the front there. So I think that that's that model is definitely one that you know that works well um and i in a sense it's it's about collaboration so just going back to um i mean one of the things that i did uh, in 2010 was at that stage um uh, bim wasn't it was sort of emerging but it hadn't been established here and i i listened to a lot of the industry and they said what would really help would be if you in government could give some sort of lead to nudge us so, and this is where the government can sometimes can use its power as a client to be an intelligent client to say, well, actually, we in government will require you to get to first stage BIM, which is what we did, um, in order to nudge some of the, the practices on the design side, but on the engineering side as well, etc., to start to invest in that so that uh, it became the norm for government contracts and therefore it was worth investing in because it somebody needed to take the lead and I think that's one of those areas where um, what we could do was create a framework but not direct I mean I personally I'm not happy with government whether I'm the minister or anybody else telling industry in great detail what they should do you know, our job should be to be a good partner or a good client or a sensible legislator or whatever, but it shouldn't be about direction. And so mm. that issue of collaboration, of partnership, because BIM, you know, facilitates collaboration. You've got to share data to make the thing work. And that I, oh, I felt was a good way of starting to tackle some of that underlying cultural issue in the sector, because you have, you know, as you say, um, historically, there's always been a slightly command, well, there's been a command and control approach. The boss says this, so we do it. And if the boss hasn't said anything, we don't know what to do. Equally, that confrontational issue around payments and retentions. So, you know, if the lead contractor is holding the money back uh, and everybody down through the supply chain is struggling, it's a confrontational environment. You know, and there were, let's be honest, there were contractors back at that point who money was cash was tight. So, you know, they only paid when they they had to be dragged kicking and screaming to pay, you know, months after yeah. 30 days or whatever it's meant to be. And that's a confrontational approach. So I kind of felt that if we as clients said, right, BIM is there, you've got to share data. 
it's start and then I mean we didn't do enough on retentions I mean if you said to me the one area I failed on I think that was the area we just didn't make enough progress on uh, I mean they got there we got project accounts and we started to move in a sensible direction after that but um, but tackling that culture is about sending good signals that encourage people to work together constructively um, and that was a good area where government can usefully uh, set the direction and then let businesses follow. So, so, so just building on that, Mark, and going, going back to the military uh, yeah. situation, th th there's a great saying in the military that no strategy survives first contact with the enemy. Yep, absolutely right. And, and, and so um, I, I'm told that the, the military now have, the, the military creates strategic intents so the strategic intent for this battalion is to mm. get to the top of the hill by yep. by by uh, by you know uh, uh, tomorrow or whatever you know, you know the end days. of the day yeah okay and 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 so the strategic intent is to get to the top of the hill and and it's left to the people on the ground to work out how they're going to do that yep and and, and I love that because yeah. you know you know there's so much being directed by, by head head office and and a lot of it just doesn't it doesn't happen you know the the, the plan just didn't survive first contact with the yes. staff yes yes <laughs> uh, so 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 tell, let's tell the staff what you know the the, the strategic intent is what, we, yep. what we've got to achieve and then let them get on with it and, yes. and because you know they're really qualified and and, and they're well paid so Yep. You know, let them let them work it out. They're doing the job. So, yeah, interesting. Well, and I think that if you're going to keep good people and we all know at the moment, a lot of most business, most people I'm working with as managers, you know, if you say to them, what's the number one problem? It's 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 keeping the people and seeing people going out the door. One of the ways of keeping people is that they feel they're growing in their job. Mm. And you and that is by them getting securing more responsibility and being listened to and being able to take the lead in in areas rather than waiting for somebody else to tell them what to do. Mm. Uh, people will tire of that. And I think, you know, each generation has gone through. I would say to you that uh, the willingness just to be waiting, uh, you know, told what to do has shrunk with every generation. Mm. Um, and so therefore, if you want the brightest and best to come into your sector or to your business, you're going to have to work with them in a way that they feel is rewarding. Otherwise, they'll be off somewhere else. And that's Absolutely. the stark reality. It's interesting you say about, you know, the willingness has changed within each generation. So, you know, there's a lot of research, Harvard and various places like that, mm. that have looked at... Uh, you know the millennials, for instance. Oh yes. Uh, they, they 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 don't want to be told. They, they want no. to be coached, and they want to coach people around them. So they yes. want to, you know, they they want to be asked. They want to be challenged. They want to think for themselves, and they want to ask and challenge and help the people around them think for themselves. Mm. Uh, and and they're, they're particularly intolerant of, of being, you know, instructed. On a, on a yes. daily basis and and they're leaving you know they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're leaving uh, the construction industry in droves and, and so you know the the perennial skills shortage 
which has been talked about at least for 45 years since I've been in the construction industry. <laughs> yes, exactly. But, well, okay, we've we, we got to look at how we get people in the industry, but we also got to look at how we retain yes. you know, the fantastic people that are already there. Mm. And, and, and I passionately believe that people in construction are brilliant people. You know, they, they, they've got energy. They, they come to work to get stuff done, mm. but they're held back, you know, every step of the way. And, you know, and because of the, you know, the, the fragmented nature of the industry that you talked about earlier on, because of, you know, increasing uh, controls and procedures and, and uh, you know, layers, layer upon yes. layer of necessary assurance because of, you know, uh, you know, the way the world is. Uh, mm. So it's 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 so much harder to get the job done now uh, than than I think it was when when I had a proper job. You know, when I was a project manager thirty years ago, yeah, um, it wasn't quite a matter of well, we just turned up and got the job done. You know, there were controls and procedures in place, but I don't think to the extent there are now. No, uh, and and I think the nature of all the different rules and regulations has changed. Um, I mean, look at the shift towards more environmental rules and regulations, quite rightly. Um, uh, you know, and that's that's quite a complex situation because we're, we're trying to effectively uh, make two or three jumps in terms of where building regulations are for uh, carbon emissions and so on to, you know, very high standards indeed. It's a big jump. And um, people have got to get their heads around stuff that's actually quite complex and isn't necessarily really the sort of conventional building standard. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's when um, after the terrible tragedy at Grenfell, I was on the select committee when Dame Judith Hackett you know, came to give evidence. And of course, one of the things that she was trying to say was that um, in the past, if something was written down in great detail, people would try to follow what it said in letter but wouldn't think around it as to whether or not, um, you know, actually they were they were achieving the wider goals of greater safety. They would simply say, what does it say? It says this, I will do that. I won't think outside of it. I won't think beyond it. I will do that. And one of the things she was trying to say, and, it, and the new regulations include, is actually we expect everybody at every level to take a sense of responsibility in thinking about what does this mean and how will it work and does it deliver the the, the overall goals what you called the strategic um uh what was the phrase you used again strategic for the intent strategic intent and uh, and of course it's trickier that way because in some ways isn't it easier for many of us especially if it's a complex technical thing to say right show me the piece of paper and i will follow the words that are on that piece of paper and then it's you know i've done my bit it's not my responsibility i'm all i've done is i've ticked the box and so on so forth. but now suddenly people are expected not only to read those regulations but to then work out how they can deliver it in the best possible way so um i think that also points towards encouraging more people into a coaching mentality because it's about people taking responsibility and not saying well you know I've, I've, I just did my job I just did as I was told that's not good enough anymore and that's probably the right thing but it does it change it's a different mindset that's required to in order to deliver that I, th I think I think there's so 
I think there's something really interesting around mindset, Mark. Um, a, a lot of the people I, I come across in the construction industry, as brilliant as they are, they see themselves as problem solvers, as engineers who have got a, a, a technical thing to solve. Um, <clears throat> and, and you've mentioned the word complexity on a few occasions, that there's a different mm. mindset in how to thrive, in how to cope even in what is now called, you know, VUCA, you know, V-U-C-A, you know, the world is volatile. Yes. Yep. And when, you know, so volatile, when change happens, it happens rapidly. You know, for yep. instance, coronavirus. Yep. You know, within a month. Yes. Of, of, of that arriving in the country, the, 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 the whole world was different. So volatile. Yeah. Yep. And it's uncertain. You know, so you, you can't, your future cannot be, is not an extra, extrapolation of your past. You know, there's so much uncertainty. And then there's complexity itself. You know, everything is connected across the world. Mm. now and uh you know the number of interconnections and nodes is is off the scale you know the number yes. of variables is off the scale and then ambiguity you know people we, there's, there's no longer you know there's a there's an erosion of boundaries and we don't know what right and wrong is anymore mm. so mm. so we're living in this this vuca world where <clears throat> there are no straight answers and i think this is partly where politicians get a bad rap because, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking back to Brexit. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the public was shouting for, well, just give us the truth. Just give us the facts. Yes. Well, there's no truth here. And there's <laughs> no facts. It's complex. <laughs> you know, it's it taken is. us 40 years to get into this situation. Yes. You know, we cannot give you a one-liner. That's no. a single fact. That's going to get us out of this situation, whether you mm -hmm. agree with it or not. The same with coronavirus. And so... So, so I think politicians deal in this VUCA world where there are complex problems and there, are, there aren't, you know, one sentence, one line or answers. But, no. the, public, but the public want, you know, they want a, a, a soundbite. They want, you know, they want, yes. just give us the facts. T tell us the answer. And there isn't an answer. No. Uh, and you're, and you're, you're so right about that. And I think also very often what people say to, you know, when I was the housing minister and the social housing sector said, we just, you know, just, just tell us what the regulations are and then we're happy. And I had to say, well, actually, it's not as simple as that because uh, those regulations relate to the tax environment, which relates to your rental agreement with your tenants. And what we've got to do is we've got to look at the picture in the round here. We can't just deal with one thing. You know, we've got to understand what, what that means. And I, I think in one sense, Politics is very good training, particularly at ministerial level, for dealing with that, as you say, that volatile world. Um, I mean, literally most days as a minister, you'd get up and whatever was in your programme for the day would almost certainly get completely ripped up by about nine o'clock in the morning because something had happened, you know, uh, that was unexpected or you suddenly needed to be in the chamber. Uh, I was uh, I was roped in at, with less than 45 minutes notice to go to Buckingham Palace to host um a meeting involving uh the emir of qatar his entire government and the leading british luminaries from you know sir this and dame that um because there'd been a change and vince cable couldn't make the meeting so i was the next best thing so yeah. you know i'm stuck in a car and i've got to go and chair this and i'm reading the brief in the car as we go yeah. um you know so or um 
you, you know, you suddenly find that actually, as you say, the, the events in the sector have changed. Or when I was uh, a shadow minister, you know, we had the terrible 7-7 uh, bombings in London and everything changes immediately. And that day, you know, I always remember I was a, I was a, um, a whip for the opposition and I was uh, covering the home, of, home affairs team. So the government then, Charles Clark was the Home Secretary in government. And critically, when something like that happens, uh, I'm, I'm pleased to say that um, the general approach is always that opposition will go in to see the ministers when they're able to take the briefing, behave constructively, yes, ask questions, but do so in a positive and, and constructive manner and recognize that those events are moving very quickly and ministers are having to deal with them as they happen. And it's not made any easier, I have to say, you know, I remember talking to Sir Geoffrey Howe, who was sort of number two to Margaret Thatcher many years ago. And he said, you know, in his day, so this was the 80s, the news cycle was kind of once a day. Uh, as long as you kind, something had happened during the day, as long as by sort of six o'clock, you'd got your act together and you'd worked out what the response was, you were able to give a coherent response on television and the public would understand what, this, what, what the problem was and what the government was going to do about it. Today, the news cycle is every 15 minutes and, and events are very often happening and, and the, the media want you to have an immediate response. And very often it's the stupidest thing you can do because you don't know all the facts and you have to just wait a moment. And because sometimes what you can see on television isn't the whole picture. Something happened before that led to this that means that actually your response should be different than what may appear to be the right thing. And so you're right. I think um, actually, I certainly, it's taught me that uh, in any day and in any job description, what you thought were certainties, you know, almost certainly can be blown to the wind by lunchtime. <laughs> And you're doing something completely differently and to not relax into it but to make be a good judge of the the problems that you know uh, are, are really serious and the ones just not to sweat and, and that that ability to be pragmatic in managing risk i think is a really yeah. you know a really important one because every day every business is jug juggling financial risk uh, reputational risk practical risks for their their staff on in projects and you just need to be able to understand the ones that matter and the ones that can can wait and actually the ones where you don't have all the information it will be wiser to keep stum and not to uh pontificate about much as the media would love you to talk about it um because they've got space to fill um you know that, that's one of the challenges so so what so what so what we're talking about here mark i think is mindset so yes what one of the things that i'm encouraging what one of the things i write about is is you know in this volatile uncertain unpredictable complex and ambiguous world mm. which we are now operating in living yes. and operating in you know the old-fashioned linear cause and effect mindset where there is an answer uh what's the answer no longer works you know no. we're living in a complex world where a lot of what we're talking about and particularly if we're managing people who are in and of themselves infinitely complex uh beings yes um quite often there isn't an answer uh, you know, there's there isn't an answer to world hunger. There isn't an answer to isn't a single answer to 
to COVID or Brexit or, you know, mm. even, you know, uh, geopolitics. Um, all you can do is make progress and, and yes. make some more progress and make some more progress and, and you'll get there. And so part, part of the, the, for me, the beauty about coaching is it, it, it enables people to think for themselves and how they move forward. Because that's what, to me, that's what coaching is. It's future focused and it's positive and it's about getting to uh, a better place. You know? yeah. and, and if that better place is building a project, that's part of it. And so how do we keep moving forward? So let's have a conversation uh, with the team. Uh, you know, let's not try and boil the ocean and fix this huge problem yes. in the 45 minutes that we've got. Let's yep. just get some thinking going and work out how we move forward together. Yes. And then let's keep moving forward together and we'll get there. And so that's why I'm encouraging a coaching style of management for young construction professionals so they mm. can start inculcating that approach in the industry. It also needs to happen top down as well. I think you're right. And I think the, the this thing about mindset um, you know, I remember talking to several business leaders about uh, how they need to be more consumer facing. And they were talking to me about uh, new IT systems they were going to put in place and so on. And I said, well, it's not that simple because and one of the strengths, I suppose, or one of the experiences you gain as a, as a mem constituency member of parliament is all the time you are hearing and listening to the, the huge variety of public opinion on any, on any issue. Um, and so the notion that you can change an organization that's inward looking by applying information technology on its own is false. It's about making sure the organization itself is outward looking, mm. that it's able to receive and hear and understand the variety of different representations they're getting. It might be residents if you're a housing association, it might be your clients if you're a major contractor, it may be the immediate neighborhood. You know, it's, it's that sensitivity to what's going on around you and just being able to judge exactly, you know, what that means. And I think, I think you're right to say that one of the things I've found, certainly with the coaching clients that I've worked with, um, is their realization they can be more adaptable in what is a very volatile world. If you've got a rigid command and control thing uh, or structure, if it's very hierarchical, then it, it is always slow off the mark. It, partly because it's not listening, because it can't hear mm. what's happening on the ground. Whereas if you've got that open approach, you're picking up even before it becomes a problem that there's an issue over here which is going to start to grow, and and so it's just that that adaptability, that flexibility that I think is one of the the hidden benefits. Fantastic. So, Mark, last question. Yeah. So, so we're 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 we're, we're talking about politics. We're talking about industry. We're talking about construction industry. We've each of us have mentioned coaching yes. on several occasions. Well, what is coaching, and what is it not? <laughs> gosh yes just just got another hour um i think i think for me it's about helping people fulfill their potential yes. putting it very crudely and it's not about telling it's about learning you said it at the start which is that 
It's about knowing how to give people a space through good questions, but also by patient listening, um, by, through reflection, that actually people can, can learn uh, about themselves, become more self-aware, and therefore uh, have a, a greater sensitivity around how they work with their team, how they work with clients and others, and how they can fulfill what they can be. Very often, my coaching clients, have they've got the answer, but it's rattling around in their head with 17 other problems. And the process of coaching is helping them, the way I look at it is very simply, is helping them put it out onto the table, as it were, in an environment where they can talk it through and start to work out what matters and actually what can wait and actually what needs to change in their behavior and actually why that awkward conversation they've been avoiding, why they're avoiding it. Um, it just gives them that space. And I think when you're running an organization, even a small team, it can be quite a lonely thing. And that coaching relationship gives people that space in which to, to work the issue through and to uh, you know, be able to realize the need for a change in their behavior and their thinking. Fantastic. We've been talking with Mark Prisk, uh, former UK Housing and Construction Minister and now Executive Coach. Mark, thank you very much. It's been a great conversation. Good luck. Thanks, Dave. Today we've been talking about coaching conversations. I hope you've enjoyed listening and you are taking away something that you can use to make things better for you and those in your team or around you. To find out more, or even better, learn the essentials of a coaching style of management, check out Coach for Results book and course on our website, dsabuilding.co.uk or simply click the link below. This is Dave Stitt and you've been listening to Coaching Conversations.